Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Roundup. I guess I made a whole bunch of little mistakes last week. Nothing, you know, monumental or no major information, but like I called Super SD System 3, 2, and I said that Luc Besson directed the taxi movies, he wrote them and created them, and some other little things like Ferrugia didn't put an upscaler in a VHS player, it was just their technology. So I'm sorry about that, I guess my head hasn't been totally in the game lately, but... Um, luckily there was no massive mistakes, just little flubs like that. So I'm going to try my best not to make any this week, but as always, feel free to point out down below. I don't mind ever being wrong, but, uh, it's nice when I'm corrected so I don't accidentally spread misinformation or anything, but let's jump right into it. First up, My Life in Gaming just uploaded a video about how to get the best from your Super Nintendo using some of the latest tweaks and hacks that are out there. Overall, I thought they did an absolutely amazing job, as always, and their comparisons were great. There were just a few things that, um, I don't know if I would call them mistakes, but things that I possibly disagreed on. Um, and the first thing is just the way I interpreted how they described the brightness from one chips in minis. Now, most of the people I spoke to about this interpreted it the opposite way, so maybe I'm, I'm just the minority here, but it almost felt to me like they said you can't get proper brightness out of a one-chipper mini unless you use a newer 7374 RGB bypass mod. And that's just not true at all. You could even have a completely stock one chip, and all you have to do is add three resistors to the RGB lines, the guides are all up on my site, and the video output is the perfect brightness level after that. Or close enough within reason. All of these things have large tolerance swings between them and all that. But point being, it's not going to be a washed out look. You should definitely be able to get get it to look the way you know the way it should. And that also goes for everybody who has a 7314 or 7316 mod. That's just the three wire bypass, because once again those. Uh, that brightness attenuation wasn't built into those boards, but it could be done right on the board with those same three resistors. So I just wanted to make everybody aware of that because, uh, you know, now there's going to be a ton of people seeing this, and I would assume at least a few are going to interpret it the way I did. And I would just feel really bad if a bunch of people went and pulled out perfectly good mods from their system when they really didn't need to. At, you know, at worst, they needed to just add three resistors and be done with it. But that was just a misinterpretation, and it sounds to me like the majority of the people that watched it completely understood where they were going with that. The other thing that I kind of disagreed on, um, but it makes a little bit of sense, is using the sRGB chip on a SNES Mini. Now, on a one chip, uh, it is my strong opinion that the only two ways to use it, uh, a fat one chip, so one chip 01, 02, 03, are either uh, with its stock encoder and just those three resistors on there to, to make the brightness correct, or a full 7374 bypass and nothing else. Um, on a mini, you now have a choice. You could, because you have to do a mod, 
you could do uh, the mod that allows you to use its own built-in amplifier, the sRGB chip, or you could use one of the newer solutions. I suggest the 7374 mod. Now, here's the, where the gray area in their video comes, is I believe they called using the Mini's own chip a less than ideal picture, and it's not. It's awesome. It's crystal clear. Uh, the difference between that and the 7374's output is way smaller than the already small difference between a one chip and a bypassed one chip. So if you've already done that mod and you have the correct brightness resistors on there, I certainly, and you're happy with it, I certainly wouldn't pull that out. But to their point uh, about not using it and using something else, if you're going to have to mod your console from scratch anyway, there are a bunch of other advantages of using that 7374 board. It's anything from turning on and off the low-pass filter to how you want the TTL or 75-ohm sync. And I don't want to get too nerdy on this, but... I do agree with their recommendation of using that 7374 board over it just because of so many other things involved in that, including the fact that uh, using those boards do help with the white line issue to the point where it makes it almost invisible in many, many cases. So while it doesn't affect people that watch their video because the outcome is still, you should probably do the other one, I just wanted to, to make a point for the people that were using the sRGB encoder to get RGB or and S-Video actually from their minis, I wouldn't run out and swap it out if as long as you're happy with it as is. So two minor criticisms, all things considered. There were two omissions, and I'll take the full blame for this because I actually assisted with their script. So if, uh, if there were things that weren't in the video, it's you could say that it was a huge part my fault for not bringing it up to them. But the first was that they talked a lot about Voltar 7374 bypass for both the one chip and the mini. And it is amazing. I mean, I, I've been talking to them this whole time. I know the research that went into this. Uh, it's a great board. But they didn't mention Bordy, who's also done amazing research over the years and contributed a ton to the retro gaming SNES scene. And on top of that, the original design, even the one that I sold for the 7314 board, was actually Bordy's. Uh, it was funny because I, I, I had started working on something that looked similar, but it was like a perfect square. And then I saw his board, and I just said, hey, man, I'm kind of working on the same thing, and yours is way better. Would you mind sharing somehow? And he just said, absolutely, do whatever you need. Let me know if you need some help. He was awesome about it. Uh, he even wrote Retro RGB on it, which I thought was cool. So um, I just uh, I felt bad that they didn't mention him because he absolutely deserves recognition for the work that he's done. And even some of the things that he talked about that uh, maybe we found a different way to go about it, it was still a lot of his work that brought up the question to begin with. So, um, you know, huge shout out to Bordy. I hope to get him on uh, to be interviewed soon. It's been weird with the holidays trying to get schedules, but definitely wanted to give him a shout out. And the very last thing to mention, which probably didn't have a place in their video anyway, but it's my opinion that if you're going to pop these consoles open, for any reason, even just to add the three resistors to a one chip, it would be worth replacing the DC to DC converter. Now that's the, the little power regulator that's bolted onto the heatsink on both consoles. Um, it's my opinion that since you're gonna open it anyway, just replace that with the newer version. So all of the originals use a 7805, and then the newer version is the 78S05. And at worst, at absolute worst, you'll see no change. At best, you'll reduce that white line a lot, 
and you've just replaced a component that definitely will fail at some point. It might take another 20 years, it might take another two weeks. There's no way to tell, but it will fail. So if you already have it open, why not spend an extra $2 to just replace that too? Once again, it's probably not a place in that video to do that, but I just feel like if I'm going to open up a one chip and do a bypass and then swap the capacitor for the ghost, uh, the ghosting fix, why not just throw an extra power, or a brand new power regulator on there and just to make sure I never have to open the thing again. So I guess that was a really long, really long criticism of a, a couple of not so important things. Except the boardy thing. That one, I, I feel like, is kind of important. And I'm, I'm sorry for not adding it to the script. I take full responsibility for that. I should have. But uh, overall, it's still an amazing video. I just really felt like, especially the crowd that watches these weekly roundups, are generally more technical. So um, we're going to be the ones that catch these things. Like, hey, isn't the brightness fine if you just do that? So, uh, you know, all ton of respect for them. Still love the video. Still thought they did a great job. I just wanted to add my thoughts on it to clear up possible misconceptions and just to add my own two cents on it. But as always, huge shout out to those guys, and I can't wait for their next one. Next, Retrobit just announced a partnership with Sega to make peripherals for the Genesis, Saturn, and Dreamcast, as well as potentially other things. Um, and I guess they said they're going to be showing some of these products at CES, which is only a few weeks away. And I'm not really getting my hopes up. I mean, I know I hate to be the everlasting pessimist sometimes, but some of these companies just, uh, you know, I don't want to call it a cash grab because some do put a lot of time and effort into these things. But if we're just going to get a new controller for the Saturn, that's the same thing as what already exists, but, you know, a reproduction of it or a Bluetooth version that might add some lag. I just, it's not something that I would ever care about, especially anything that has any potential to add any lag at all. So uh, I wanted to let everybody know about it. I'll report back once they have more announcements from CES and I could show actual products, but I got a lot of emails about this and I just want to make sure everybody curbs their expectations because it might just be a new set of Bluetooth controllers that work. Meh. <laughs> Next is something that's not quite retro gaming related, but it's definitely retro video related. The Alamo Drafthouse is opening a store called the Video Vortex, where they're going to have a bunch of different uh, Blu-rays and DVDs, as well as VHS tapes that they're going to be renting. Which is very cool, except they also are trying to spin it as, if you don't have a VHS player, they're going to rent you a VCR, as well as an RCA to HDMI adapter. So I have a feeling that this is going to be a massive and huge fail, because or that part of it, the technology part of it at least. Because while I do know a ton of people that still have CRTs and VHS players, and there are a whole bunch of movies that, while there are digital transfers of it, maybe the best way to experience it would be a VHS tape. It's certainly debatable. Um, and those people would really benefit from something like this, you know, have a movie night, whatever, but just, I can imagine your average hipster walking in here, grabbing a VCR and a composite to HDMI converter, plugging it into your flat screen, and it's going to look like garbage. So, um, I'm really interested to see what this is going to be like. 
I would actually have preferred the opposite. And of all places, something like the Alamo Draft House would have actually been the perfect place to do this. But I wish they'd open up a, a private viewing room in one of their stores so that you could bring in, or they would bring in, a nice big, like a 40-inch CRT. Something high quality but not ridiculous. Not a BVM or a multi-sync monitor, but just a really nice CRT and a really nice S-Video um, VHS player. And then maybe even just a consumer-grade surround sound system. And then have it so that you could have rent a room and have 10 of your friends go in and watch a VHS tape on in that scenario. I think that would be an awesome idea because they tailor the experience. All you have to do is show up and buy their beer. And that way it's a private thing. It's, you know, not everybody's going to like this. And you don't have to worry about people's technology at home or anything involved in deinterlacing and going from composite video 480i to a 4K TV. So I don't know, if anybody works at the Alamo Draft House or knows anybody, maybe uh, give me a call. Uh, I'll go help them build one of these demo rooms and uh, see if we could have a very cool throwback room or something like that. But um, the bottom line is, though, this company is very dedicated to trying to preserve different video formats, different rare movies and stuff like that. So the heart's in the right place, but what a very stupid execution. <laughs> but I'm, hopefully they'll do the in-house viewing at some point. Professor Abrasive just announced that he's back at work at the Satiator, which is the optical drive emulator for a Sega Saturn that requires no modding. You just plug it in, stick an SD card in, and then you could play all your games that way. He had previously taken a few months off to move and get family stuff done, but now he's back at it. And I believe he's also looking for a manufacturing and sales partner to make this available. So I know a few of you guys that I've worked with before do a great job with this and hopefully still watch this weekly roundup. Uh, so if, uh, you know, if, if you guys have experience with this stuff, please contact him because I'm sure he'd love to, to work with somebody, especially that, somebody that could handle worldwide sales. So please reach out to him if you have the ability to do this. And I'm really excited to get this product out because anytime you have a mod-free solution to fix a problem, it's just awesome. And the bottom line is, you could debate until you're blue in the face about whether ROMs are good or bad or, you know, if you should feel bad about it. The bottom line is, a lot of these CD-ROM drives are breaking, and we're very soon going to run out of replacement parts for them. Very soon is a relative term. I'm talking about, you know, in the history of electronics. So it might take another 20 years, but, you know, we'll definitely run out of this stuff before we run out of the technology for SD cards. So I really love the fact that people who have Saturns with broken disk drives now could just stick an SD card in and continue to use them without dealing with fixing it or anything else involved. So I think a lot of people seem to forget, too, that calibrating drive lasers is not as easy as just dialing the potentiometer until it works. I mean, a lot of people do that, but it's really not good for it at all. You really should use an oscilloscope to calibrate it. So not even having to worry about that at all, and just plugging something in is really the best option, in my opinion. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to supporting the product when it comes out, and I will update everybody when there's more info. Speaking of ROMs and bootlegging, a version of Cuphead was released on the iTunes App Store that was completely fake and not at all from the original developer. And while I'm the first one to admit that I use ROMs for all my old consoles and even jailbreak some of my newer ones so I could do testing, stuff like this really bothers me and I do not take part in any of this crap ever. 
what happened here is not trading of ROMs or something. This Somebody made a fake version of Cuphead that sort of kind of looked like it and then posted it to the App Store as if it was a real game. And that means that direct revenue is taken away from the developers that made a really awesome game. And this hurts in a couple of different ways. So first, it obviously directly takes sales away from the original developer. But also, imagine if uh, imagine if I played that version of it, and then I got on here and just said, "Oh, Cuphead sucked." I played it on my iPhone. I didn't like it at all. And a bunch of people are like, "Oh, I you know I usually like the same type of games that Bob likes. Too bad that it sucks. You know, I won't play it now." That's a big deal, and that that's you know that's a that's something that happens all the time with YouTube reviewers and things like that. So it makes me very sad. And if you guys ever see any fake crap like this for new and upcoming games, I would report it right away. And I guess um, the company that made Cuphead said that a lot of people do report stuff to them about this, but it takes away from their company resources to chase this stuff down. So sucks that the people would actually do that for a brand new game that's out and trying to support developers that made it but such is life i guess i read kind of a neat article i figured i'd share with you guys about an easter egg in the atari game adventure that supposedly inspired the movie ready player one so the original developer or programmer if you'd like to call him that warren robinett um, wrote about how at that period of time for Atari, the programmers were treated really badly. Bad pay, they were treated as throwaway employees, as if anybody could replace them because it doesn't matter. So they also wouldn't get any recognition on the games at all. There's no names in the credits or anything like that. So Warren decided to program in kind of a convoluted way to find a secret room where it's, uh, it showed his name developed by and he put that as an Easter egg in the game. So I just thought that was really neat. I thought it was a, a great way to, you know, stick your finger up at the man. T totally deserved. And it's certainly harmless. It's not like that did any damage to anybody. But I also remember when I was interviewing Phone Dork that he talked about that being one of his favorite games. So uh, if you're watching, Craig, let me know and um, what you think about that. Did you ever find the secret room? Is that something you can go back and get pretty easily? I I've never played the game, which I know, blasphemy, it's an awesome game that I'm supposed to have been played by now, but um, yeah, let me know. I'd love to hear about it. It looks like someone's working on a fork of the digital CPS2 interface. That's the board that gets 1080p output from a Capcom CPS2 board. And it looks like he made a few different adjustments to it, changed where the HDMI connector was, and maybe this would be better for you, maybe the original one would, but the point is, I absolutely love stuff like this. I mean, Marcus was nice enough to put this up as open source, and then somebody capitalized on it and said, okay, well, I want these changes made, so I'm going to make them and now share them with everybody. So that's really great, and I'd love to see that, because there's been so many cool products that have come from collaborations. So who knows, maybe this fork will lead to something else or, or whatnot. But I, uh, I'm still waiting to, to test one of these as well. I think uh, the guys from iFix Retro put one together, but I haven't gotten over there to, to see it yet. But um, hopefully it'll live up to its expectations because as much as I would, if I had a choice, I would only game uh, these classic games on CRT monitors, CRTs aren't going to last forever. So to have a way to play the original games on in high def on a zero lag flat screen is an amazing uh, opportunity and a great alternative if you can't get a CRT. So uh, I'll keep everybody updated on the project and hopefully get to do a review of it at some point uh, of either the original or of the fork in the open source project.
Someone just made a fully 3D printed case for the Sega Game Gear. I guess he had wanted to make a consoleized version of it, so he made a full 3D print where you just take out the guts and put them into this. And it looks really neat. I know the Behar brothers have their consoleized Game Gear, which is made out of their custom acrylic case, which I thought actually was really, really awesome. But this is another way to do it, and uh, it's just pretty neat because it's just a full 3D print design. Um, I'm, I can't even imagine how long it would take to 3D print two large pieces like that, but it looks very cool, and I hope that he's willing to share the design files with everybody, so anybody that wants to make their own can just kind of follow his lead and, and do the same thing. And speaking of 3D Game Gear, somebody has just released CAD files for the Sega Game Gear and their cartridges. So it looks like they had made it from scratch, so there's you know, a 3D design of a Game Gear available on grabcad.com. And while it would be pretty neat to 3D print just a regular Game Gear case, I think there's plenty of those available. What I would like is a 3D printed cartridge so that I don't have to cannibalize a game to use an EverDrive. Uh, I know a lot of people probably think that is ridiculous because you could buy garbage Game Gear games for a dollar, games that most people would never ever play again, but it just still feels strange to me, pulling out a, a PCB, throwing it out, and you know, cutting a, an old cartridge case just for an EverDrive. So who knows, maybe somebody will make a 3D print of that. Um, and if you do, please let me know, because I'd like one. LibRetro has posted an appeal to game journalists on their website uh, in talking about people that use their code improperly. And I have two very strong opinions about this that might piss people off. I'm sorry. I uh, just, as always, I got to say how I feel about these things. Number one, I think all of us would agree that any company that uh, takes code that's not theirs and uses it against the rules is wrong. And while it's a pretty, uh, it's a, a very clear path of what to do if that's commercial code, it's not clear what can be done with non-commercial code. And it's, I still think it's wrong. I just, I wish there was a way that we could enforce punishment for companies that do that because it's, to me, it's pretty damn close to stealing. The other side, though, uh, is LibRetro, and I think maybe just this one guy, Daniel, I don't know, I, don't, I have no affiliation with them, um, but at the very least, the person in charge of their social media very often has a problem with people that use the code that completely follow the guidelines. So when I saw this post pop up and when people started emailing me about it, I tried to just kind of ignore it and not talk about it at all because I just didn't even want to get into this again. But a lot of people were emailing me this, so I figured I needed to address it. So um, I don't mean to oversimplify, but when they talk about, when LibRetro talks about people um, taking their open source code, but using it, violating the terms of agreement, I hate that. And I have very openly talked about it when Hyperkin did that. And even when people in my comment section were saying, we're tired of hearing you say that, I kept saying it because I felt very strongly that that's pretty damn close to stealing, if not stealing. And it sucks that there's no way to, to punish for something like that. But on the other side of this, I, I just don't want to have anything to do with this guy. I had one run-in with him where he followed me on different social medias and harassed me, including through Patreon, which, not so bright, man. Why are you harassing people that are trying to pay you for, for your work and support you. Uh, but I just, I am completely turned off by the way he treats people and by the way he jumps down people's throats if uh, e even people who are using his code 100% according to the guidelines. I don't, I, I just, I don't think that 
that's something that should be tolerated, and I don't want to have anything to do with this guy whatsoever. And it sucks about the Patreon thing, because I still love a whole bunch of musicians uh, and, and follow their music, but think they're shitty people. And just because I don't like this guy at all doesn't mean I don't love Lib Retro and everything, all of the things they've accomplished. So uh, maybe if I uh, unblock him on Patreon and start supporting me again, uh, hopefully he'll just ignore me and not continue to message and harass me like he did last time. But I, I just I had to speak my opinion about this because while the, their post was correct, um, I think a lot of people misunderstand what the Lib Retro posts on Twitter are about. And very, very often he's talking about uh, people who use his code 100% correctly, and he's still pissed about it for whatever reason. So um, I'm going to try not to talk about this again because I don't want to get sucked into drama. I want nothing to do with this dude. All I know is Lib Retro as a project, I totally support and I'm a big fan of. This one dude who likes harassing people, uh, I just I don't want to have anything to do with him, and I, I really am uncomfortable even talking about the post because I just... Uh, I'm sure my inbox is going to blow up with this dude and, you know, whatever else. So feel free to flame me down below if you disagree with anything. Uh, but that's certainly my stance on it as of now. The former editor-in-chief of Nintendo Power Magazine has just started his own podcast, appropriately titled the Nintendo Power Podcast. And I believe the first episode, they talk about the Switch and Breath of the Wild, and basically a year in review of that. So I haven't actually had a chance to listen to it yet, but, I mean, if it's anything like Nintendo Power, I'm going to assume that it's probably worth checking out at least the first episode, or first couple. I always try to give things a chance before I uh, make an opinion on it, but I'm certainly interested to see what they talk about. I just want to remind everybody that Super G switches are coming up for sale on January 2nd. So that's the G-SCART switch Lite and the G-COMP switch will both be available 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday, January 2nd. So the day before next week's podcast. And, um, I mean, I don't need to say much more than that. I've talked very length about both of those switches. and I am a massive and huge fan. And as always, he's given us plenty of notice, and uh, hopefully he's made enough where there's not going to be a, a quick sellout window. I believe he said he made a lot this time, so hopefully we won't have to jump, you know, and get it before 10.01 limited run game style. But I have a feeling there should be enough to go around this time, and I believe the last time they stayed open for a few days at least. Uh, could be wrong. Not the not the leftover sales, but the actual main sale. So if you're looking for a G-SCART Switch Lite or a G-Comp Switch, next week's definitely the time. There's been a bunch of comparisons posted of Sega Master System FM sound games versus the original that don't use the FM sound chip. And Retro Gamer BB 2019, I wonder if there's a, an easier way to say that, but uh, he posted those, so you could really hear the difference. Some games I actually much prefer the FM sound, like Maze Hunter. and others, it's really up for debate. Some are unfinished, too, I believe. But he also found an FM sound game that I had forgotten to add to my list, which was Ultima 4. So, pretty cool work, and anybody that's interested in any kind of Master System FM sound stuff, it's definitely worth taking a listen to at least your favorite games. Marcus has made some more progress in his D-Jitter mod for the SNES. 
He has a board being made, and he's going to start testing soon. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what kind of difference this is going to make, because if adding this board to your Super Nintendo makes it more compatible through the OSSC with other TVs, then it's kind of a big deal. So I'll keep everybody updated uh, as he makes further progress, and maybe I'll get a chance to test my own. Video Game Perfection just launched a winter sale from now until January 15th, where all of their products, including the open-source scan converter, are on sale. Also, they have refurbished versions of the last OSSC, the 1.5, with no audio built in. Uh, those are available at a very discounted price, although, for all I know, they'll probably be sold out by the time this airs. But at the very least, if you're able to catch this podcast in time where they're still up for sale, if you were short on cash and needed an OSSC, this would be the perfect time to jump on it. Because while it doesn't support audio, it does support all of the rest of the awesome video features. So it would be a great way to get into it. Um, They also have a few other things on sale as well. So I would definitely check out their store and maybe now's the time to buy something. The next two things are probably a better fit for Smoke Monster's ROM Roundup, but I figured I'd quickly mention them here anyway because they're more hardware-related as well. First up, BC Enable 76 just launched the world's first Game Gear to Master System two-player hack, at least I'm pretty sure it is, but he took the game Bare Knuckle, and now you could play it on a Master System using two controllers the same way you would any other two-player game like that, like Double Dragon or something. Which is neat, because up until now, the only way to do that would be to hook two Game Gears together and play it that way. So I thought that was very, very cool. And also, a game that I've been talking about for a while, Super Mario Land 2 DX, was just released as version 1.0. So it's a full color hack and uh, for, of Super Mario Land 2, the six golden coins. That also includes a couple of physics difference and pretty much improves the overall playability. But it wasn't able to be played on these uh, Analog NT Mini. So uh, that's why I wanted to mention this, is because they claimed that it does work on original hardware, but I don't have access to my Game Boy EverDrive. I probably will next weekend or something. But um, I do have my Analog NT Mini, and unless I patched the game wrong, which is possible, it doesn't seem to work. So I figured I would appeal to you guys and see if you knew the developers or if you just knew that I was using the wrong ROM for it or something like that. But I think I followed the instructions instructions correctly. So if anybody knows of a way to get it working on the NT Mini or can confirm that it does or does not work on real hardware, please post down below. Now on to the Q&As. First, I just want to thank everybody for their subtitle suggestions from last week, although a few people did misunderstand. Um, The initial problem was that I have movies and I found subtitles, but they don't line up properly. So a few people had said, you know, you could just download them here and it'll work fine. That wasn't the issue. Um, The other problem was a few people had said, why don't you just download a version of the movie with the correct subtitles? Well, number one, that doesn't exist. And number two, where do you think those movies come from? Projects like this. (laughs) So um, I don't mind being the guy that does this stuff, and I'll I'll definitely help share if people need it. But you need to to get it lined up first. Luckily, um, Fuda actually emailed me about this and suggested subtitle-index.org for downloading subtitles. And then the program Subworkshop, um, which is on, a, on SourceForge. Both links are in the description below. And I tried it with Taxi 1 and 2, and it took a bit of tweaking, but I got them to line up perfect. 
At least I think I did. I haven't watched through the full movies yet. I was just skipping through using Subtitle Workshop. And that looks like the perfect fix for those. It was a little complicated. You have to match the first uh, first and last points of spoken words. Um, and maybe when I watch through it, there's going to be you know, problems. But so far, so good with those. With Taxi 3 and 4, all of the, uh, the subtitles that I downloaded for it don't match up uh, at all. And I think that's because the Blu-ray versions that I got might have added a few seconds here and there of extra scenes. So it might, it just, they might never line up. I might actually have to reformat them individually throughout all of the movies, which I'm trying to avoid. So if you happen to, to know of subtitles for Taxi 3 and 4 that would work with these or any of that stuff, please let me know. Um, I'll keep everybody updated on this. Uh, and if you work for the MPAA and you're mad that I'm ripping my Blu-rays that I have legally purchased and adding my own subtitles, you could fuck right off because I've bought many copies of this movie, including one on Windows Media back in the day because I wanted to watch Taxi 3 in HD and that was the only way to buy it. So um, this is the perfect example of I've spent a lot of money on these movies over the years and I don't really care if what I'm doing is illegal because I'm just watching the, the movie that I purchased a whole bunch of times, including this Blu-ray. So uh, rant over, and uh, if anybody can help with those last two movies, the subtitles, I will happily share these movies with uh, fans of it as well. Next, Leo DS had a couple of newbie but very good questions regarding the open source scan converter and gaming monitors. Um, he asked that if I thought a 240p console in line triple mode would have a better chance of working with a gaming monitor, and as far as my experience goes, you're much, much more likely to have full compatibility with a gaming monitor than a TV. Um, I actually have seen gaming monitors, many gaming monitors that work with all modes of the open source scan converter, whereas a lot of the TVs that I've seen only work with 480p or only work with line triple and not 4x or 5x. That being said, I actually have a monitor that doesn't work at all with the OSSC in any resolution, but it's kind of a piece of junk. It's not a gaming monitor. It's just a basic 23-inch flat screen or, you know, flat monitor. So um, I guess for that, I would say it's worth the gamble, but you're going to have to try it to really know for sure. And the other question was for PS2, um, do you use component and play on the same monitor? Do you have to use a de-interlacer or is there another converter? And um, my suggestion on that would be uh, PS2, you could use Component or SCART. It doesn't matter because the open source scan converter can do sync on green. But I would think that in almost every monitor, you would have to do the deinterlacing to 480p because most of the monitors I've seen don't know how to use 480i at all. So because the PS2's menu system and uh, most of its games are 480i, and even the 480p games still uh, very oftentimes boot in 480i, I would use the open source scan converters deinterlacing to 480p. And then uh, for actual 480p, uh, I know I'm getting a little complicated here, but you tr I would try the pass-through first just to make sure it's working, you know, it's, everything's working fine. But then try 480p times 2, which is actually 960p, because that's been mixed results with that as well. Um, I've heard people say it looks kind of cool, but it didn't really look as good as just outputting 480p. And I've heard people say that it looks phenomenal in 960p mode, and more of those have been on a gaming monitor and not on just a regular TV. So 
Uh, I hope my explanation wasn't overly complicated. I just, uh, I guess the super short version is you'll probably have great luck with a gaming monitor, but you have to try to know for 100% sure. And yes, for the PS2, definitely start out um, on the OSSC making it output 480p because I would think that your gaming monitor might not be or probably wouldn't be compatible with 480i. Next, Oscar Brownlee asked about the Nitro DS units and if you could RGB mod them. And I actually have a video coming up pretty soon about this. I'm just uh, waiting for the last few things to shoot it. But basically, the Nitro DS units are those blue rectangles that allow you to play DS and Game Boy Advance games on a TV. And they output composite video and S-video only. So the short answer to your question of can you RGB mod them is theoretically yes, because those Nitro DS units supposedly either have the later model N64 chips or the early GameCube video chips, which would mean that technically you should be able to use either Bordy's N64 RGB or uh, the GameCube video analog board. So uh, I don't know anybody that's done it yet. It's something I'd like to look into, but all of this stuff is going to be talked about in the actual, uh, you know, Nitro, um, Nitro DS video that I'm working on. I'm not sure when I'll be able to get to it, but I'm, it's one of the top ones on my list to do, so hopefully relatively soon. But it's a very awesome device. If you don't already own one, Oscar, contact me. I could hook you up. Um, but that's pretty much all I'm going to say on it for now because those devices, in my opinion genuinely do require their own video because they're unique and different and kind of rare and uh, hopefully if people are really into them you'll be able to find good ones on eBay for not too much money. Um, I've seen them as low as 300 and as high as 1200 and not just like the sale like the for sale price. I've, I've been watching them and it actually sold for 1200 so uh, hopefully uh, anybody that really needs one of these things could get one for a fair price. And uh, I guess let me know if you need more information on it or if you need to buy one, and uh, hopefully that video will be out soon. Before I go, I just wanted to mention the video Scott and I uploaded where we talked about our experiences watching movies on Sony BVMs versus an OLED and 3D versus 4K, and we really nerded out on the movie side, and I enjoyed the hell out of it. And based on the comments, I think a lot of you guys did as well, which was very cool because... That stuff I would also like to do a lot of research and work on because it always kind of fascinated me. Um, one of the things I want to do next with Scott is dig a little bit deeper into his HD CRT, which I believe upscales everything to HD, which has its, a, a ton of advantages in specific situations. But I'd also like to find 480p only CRTs, so no, uh, ones that don't go higher than that. So if you guys know of any models I could keep my eyes out for, um, I would prefer a very large 480, you know, 240p, 480i, 480p consumer grade TV. But uh, please let me know which ones you guys know of because I'd really like to test the way those uh, process the video signals versus something like these Sony XBRs that go that send everything to HD. Uh, it's kind of a fun little thing for a next project I'll work on in the future. Um, and the one thing we also did forget to mention in that video, which I thought I would just very quickly mention here, is uh, we watched the latest Transformers movie in a bunch of different players and formats to compare. And the one thing we forgot to mention in that podcast was that the iTunes 4K version uh, was definitely better than the Blu-ray, but didn't hold a candle to the actual disc. 
So that was something that surprised me in how much better the disc, the 4K disc was versus that 4K digital download of it. Um, and that's something else we'll probably look into in the future. But uh, hopefully I'll be able to borrow some 4K capture gear at some point so we could actually dig in and show side-by-side -side comparisons or something. Or maybe I could even try to convince uh, John Lundeman from DF Retro to, to do some of these and I'll just pop on as a quick guest in that one or something. But... Either way, I enjoyed the hell out of it, and I really hope to be doing more videos like that in the future. But that's it for this week. As always, thank you so much to all my Patreons. Uh, next week, I believe, is the Patreon giveaway, so uh, I think that'll be timed properly. So hopefully I'll have something really great to talk about and show you next week. Um, as always, any comments or criticism, please post down below. I read all of them, and I love hearing from you guys, and I'll see you next time.